I hadn't intended to do this, but I, I'm going to anyway, because it just popped out when we were singing the psalm. Uh, my colleague, Margaret Irwin, who was the rector of All Saints Church in uh, Palo Alto uh, a number of years ago. She retired. She was in my colleague group. And while she was in the colleague group, one of her daughters uh, got pregnant for the first time, was going to have her first baby. And Margaret uh, went with her daughter to the doctor and uh, was there when they did the ultrasound, one of the ultrasounds that they do. And uh, she saw the ultrasound, and she said, it came into my head immediately, Psalm 139, verse 12, for you created my inmost parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I think the psalmist was prescient, you know, now we have the technology to see it, so there it is. Last week, we celebrated the baptism of Christ, and I spoke about it being, for Jesus, a vocational moment. We had the good fortune to read from Mark's gospel about uh, this uh, epiphany where the heavens open and the dove comes down and we hear a voice. We don't hear it in this gospel. Jesus hears it. And so it is for him a vocational moment and a moment of decision to think about that and how he's going to understand what shape his earthly ministry is going to take. And the readings for this Sunday from 1 Samuel, from 1 Corinthians, and from John's Gospel have something to do with varieties of vocations. So I thought I'd say some things about the nature of vocation, how the tradition in Christianity with a capital T has understood the meaning of vocation, what we're called to do as uh, Christian people to live into our vocation, and how does all of that relate to the mission of the church? The word vocation in Latin it comes from a Latin word called vocare which means to call, or to summon, or to embrace in some way God's purposes for you. And so, we can understand vocation in personal terms, and we can understand vocation uh, in corporate terms. What is it that God is calling the people of God to do? What is it that God is calling each one of you to do? Up to the Protestant Reformation, I expect we have, you know, the, the primitive church's views on things which uh, began to go through a transformation, but um, through that, the period to the Protestant Reformation and really after, vocation was understood to mean somebody who's called to be a member of the clergy or uh, to be involved in some sort of religious undertaking where you have embraced a vocation. We didn't use the term vocation that much to refer to uh, other occupations. 
The reformers were interested, however, in saying we need to move the understanding of vocation and, and, and to, to a, an idea where all of us in our various vocations live into the promises of God and become instruments of God's purposes in the world. And so vocation becomes now a, a somewhat broader concept. And we need to understand vocation in terms of all the things that you and I are called to do, that we believe is how, what shape at this point our life is going to take, and what kinds of processes do we need to go through to be able to make that happen and make it so. So in the readings for today, from 1 Samuel, from 1 Corinthians, and from John's Gospel, we have maybe three types of vocation that everybody uh, can in some sense live into and understand. I was raised as a Christian scientist in the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. And in the hagiography about Mary Baker Eddy, there's a story that when she was a little girl in Concord, Massachusetts, or wherever it was, somewhere in New England, uh, she got awakened or awoke by God or a voice. She went into her family and parents and they said, go back to bed, uh, you know, woke up again, go back to bed. And then the voice came again and Mrs. Eddie heard it and listened to it and so on. And we're to, we're to believe that from that process, she then uh, was led to write science and health with key to the scriptures. Now the parallel with the, the, the young boy Samuel is clear, isn't it? And this story today is about Samuel. It's like one of your kids, you know, who gets up and comes into the bedroom in the middle of the night and wakes you up and says, I have, you know, go back to bed and come to do it again. My brother had an imaginary, in this case not a friend, an imaginary figure that frightened him a lot, called the Duke. So he would come into the, to my parents' room and say, I'm, I'm, I got, there, there's a problem, go back to bed, Ed. No, the Duke is in my bed, right? He must have had lofty ambitions to have a Duke in the bed. We all have things like this. Samuel goes to the priest Eli at the shrine and he says, I, I, uh, did you call me? He said, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he wakes up again. He comes back. He said, did you call? He said, no, I didn't call you. And he goes back to bed. And finally he comes back and he said, you know, I, I didn't call you. I think God is calling you. So the next time you say, here I am, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Vocare, the summons. What is it that I'm going to do? And so God speaks to Samuel and tells him what he intends to do. And the next day, Samuel is summoned by Eli and he said, what did God say to you? And he was hesitant and he said, you better tell me or there's going to be trouble and plenty of it. So he tells Eli what it is that God told him 
about God's plans for who's running that shrine, particularly for Eli and his two sons who were corrupt. Now, this is about the prophetic vocation. This is about the necessity that sometimes we all have to speak the truth to power in big and small ways. Don't always think about this in grand or global terms. Sometimes you've got to speak the truth to power in the family. Sometimes you have to speak the truth to power at the jo- on your job. You know? It's necessary from time to time. And what does it mean when we do that? And how are we faithful to our vocation in this regard? Don't just think about the prophetic office as something that has to do with the great prophets of Israel or the savior of the world or the great the apostles and so forth. It's about our vocation in that, in that regard to be people of integrity and to say so. In the reading from 1 Corinthians, we have, this needs, this is an O.C. Edwards, my New Testament professor, another example. It's not important what the Bible says, it's important what the Bible means. You need to know something about the situation on the ground in the Corinthian church, you know, because there's a whole lot of stuff. I hesitated to preach on this because there's fornication is mentioned. It's one of those words, fornication, a complex term. We're not going to get into that at this point, but we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul means about all these things and how he speaks about this in a way that might help us understand our vocation as Christian people because he's developing some concepts there that will come up again in his other writings. So here's the situation on the ground. As I've mentioned to you, the uh, Corinthian congregation was a conflicted church and there were a number of factions within the church in Corinth and one of them were a group of Christians that we now call Gnostics. Gnostics are having a, a, a good run these days. There's a lot of books that have been written about Gnosticism and how Gnosticism has really got a bad press and, you know, all that sort of thing. But Gnosticism, you know, never took off the ground, not because of the political circumstances that prevented it from doing so, but people did not find this a convincing picture of how they understood either the person of Jesus Christ or the vocation of Christians in the world. Gnosticism is about enlightenment. It's about personal self-fulfillment and self-knowledge. Should we not have personal self-fulfillment and self-knowledge? Of course. But it is not the centerpiece of how we understand the Christian faith in life. And the other thing that they added to this, the Corinthian Gnostics, was because of the fact that I have been enlightened, I can do as I please. All things are lawful for me. Well, what's new? Right? Seems like we're living in an environment where that's common a lot, all over the place when we stop to think about that. So Paul brings to the front two important theological concepts that ought to be known about as we think about our vocation. 
The first is that he speaks about the implications of this outlook in corporate terms and wishes to emphasize the connectedness that we all have one to another. And he uses the term, the body of Christ, that you and I are baptized into when we receive at our baptism the graft onto the body of Christ and also the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which empower us to be God's people in the world. And so we are part of the body of Christ and personal enlightenment is not at the center of that, as important as it may be under certain circumstances. And then he begins to speak of another theological concept which is important and that is that the physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is wrong to understand Paul as somebody who uh, dislikes the physical world, that, that, that creates some sort of dualism, as the Gnostics did, between the flesh and the spirit, but to understand that in our body we can turn towards and act and behave in ways congruent with God's purposes for us. And more to the point, that it is important for us in our body to develop the internal self-regulation and discipline to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. So the self-regulation of instinctual drives is part of the processes by which human beings mature. One of my heroes, Edwin Friedman, always says, maturity is taking responsibility for your own being and destiny. And realize that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That agency or process in every human person, which is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, and so by virtue of that, we have now some ability to understand our many vocations in depth, both corporately and personally. In the gospel, we have a simple vocation that is important, the call of Nathaniel. I like the older translation uh, behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Not deceit. And Nathaniel is a guy who said, you know, I don't know whether anything good can come out of Nazareth. I trust Philip. Jesus seems to know who I am. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go on the way with him and see what happens. I bet many of you have decided in your life that there was a particular vocation that you wish to follow. And you decided to do it. And uh, you're proceeding, moving from one high point to the next. And then it begins to get a little rough. 
and you say to yourself, gee whiz, I thought this vocation was going to be smooth sailing because I'm so committed to it, I'm so enthusiastic about it, I want to do it so much, and now it's becoming difficult. You know, this could be understood in very simple and rudimentary ways. I worked for my family's business from the time I was 12 years old, and when I got old enough to drive, I drove up to the city on Saturdays and opened the store and did all that sort of thing. And I remember that during the summer, I came home one day and I said to my mother, gee, you know, I'm getting up, uh, taking the five to seven train into San Francisco, taking the train back down at 6.30, getting up again, going into the, start doing all, just a bellyache. And she said, David, that's life. Both <laughs> this vocation, that's it. A bitter pill to face the fact that that's, that's it, you know. But benefits and rewards and, and a deeper and fuller understanding follow on the persistence, you know that all of us are called to in our many vocations. Now, vocation is connected to the mission of the church. It always surprises me. I even go to diocesan gatherings, and someone will say, what is the church's mission? And some enthusiastic person will raise their hand and say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's pretty good. That's Jesus' missionary command at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The Book of Common Prayer in the Catechism answers the question, what is the mission of the church? Page 855 of the prayer book. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and one another in Christ. which means that you and I have personal responsibility to be ministers of reconciliation in whatever thing we do. Not just religious vocations, not just explicitly churchy things, but in our daily vocations, we are to be instruments of reconciliation. The Greek word for this in the New Testament is katelegete. It means in Greek be reconciled, but it can also mean a changed relationship. And so reconciliation is the process whereby the nature of the relationships can be changed. Ed Friedman used to say, focusing on pathology breeds dependence. Focusing on strength breeds intimacy. And when you do that, the, the relationship changes. And you become an instrument of the reconciling power of God. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So when you hear preachers talk all the time about the kingdom of God and all, it isn't somewhere else that you're going to go in order to practice those values or to be the beneficiary of those values. It's here that the values of the kingdom of God are to be played out. And they are the values of the kingdom of God that the Savior of the world preached and taught in his earthly ministry. And you and I understand him, of course, to be the template that we lay over our own personal spiritual maturity and discipline. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So this week, if you think about your many vocations, see if you have opportunities to uh, be a reconciler to fulfill the mission of the church and to be faithful to your baptismal covenant. Amen.